Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. This episode contains serious discussions on sexual assault, rape, violence, and sex. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season five, episode eight, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 1979 horror sci-fi thriller Alien. It was directed by Ridley Scott and written by Dan O'Bannon. It stars Sigourney Weaver... Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, John Hurt, Ian Holm, Harry Dean Stanton, and Yafet Koto. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this recording and watch it. Still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So while studying cinema at the University of Southern California, Dan O'Bannon had made a science fiction comedy film called Dark Star with director John Carpenter. The film featured an alien created by spray painting a beach ball. Oh, wow. (laughs) The experience left O'Bannon, quote, really wanting to do an alien that looked real, unquote. (laughs) That didn't look real enough for No, him? I guess it wow. did. <laughs> All right. A couple of years later, he began work on a similar story that would focus more on the horror. O'Bannon wrote a 29-page script called Memory. This would be the starting point of Alien. However, O'Bannon wasn't sure how to end the film, nor was he quite sure what he wanted his alien to look like. So he just shelved the project. Eventually, O'Bannon accepted an offer to work on Alejandro Jodorowsky's adaptation of Frank Herbert's novel Dune, a project that took him to Paris for six months in the early 1970s. Though the project infamously fell through, you can learn more about this by watching the amazing documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, it introduced him to several artists whose work gave him ideas for his science fiction story, including Chris Foss and H.R. Giger. O'Bannon was impressed by Foss's covers for science fiction books, while he found Giger's work quote-unquote disturbing. O'Bannon is quoted as saying, his paintings had a profound effect on me. I had never seen anything that was quite as horrible and at the same time as beautiful as his work. And so I ended up writing a script about a Giger monster. Can I just say real quick, too, like I got stuck looking at one of um, Giger's books. It was like a book of his art in Barnes mm-hmm. and Noble. And yeah. I opened it like right in the middle. And I pro- I stared at I think it was the um, painting of like Satan. And I, oh, yeah. I stared at it for like 10 minutes. I'm not even kidding you. I'm sure that everybody who was working was like, is she okay? (laughs) 
Is there something wrong with her? His but, work is definitely mesmerizing if you hadn't seen it before. Yes, it's incredible. Yeah. And I guess even if you had seen it before, like you can't look away when you're confronted with Giger. I know. It's crazy. So after the Dune project collapsed, O'Bannon, with the help of his friend Ronald Shusette, went back to finish his script, Memory. The working title of the project was now Star Beast, but eventually they changed it to Alien after noting the number of times that the word appeared in the script. Thank he- God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He and Shusette liked the new title's simplicity and its double meaning as both a noun and an adjective. Shusette came up with the idea that one of the crew members could be implanted with an alien embryo and that it would burst out of the character. He thought that this would be an interesting plot device on how to get the alien aboard the ship. In writing the script, O'Bannon drew inspiration from many previous works of science fiction and horror. He later stated that, I didn't steal Alien from anybody. I stole it from everybody. (laughs) Some of these works include, but are not limited to, The Thing from Another World, Forbidden Planet, which in turn is based off of Shakespeare's The Tempest, and Planet of Vampires. With most of the plot in place, Shusette and O'Bannon presented the script to several studios, pitching it as Jaws in Space. (laughs) Nice. It was eventually picked up by Brandywine Productions and 20th Century Fox. However, upon selling the rights to Brandywine and Fox, O'Bannon was forced to do extensive rewrites, and even after that, Fox was getting cold feet about releasing another science fiction space film. You see, they already had one in the works, and they were worried it would flop. It wasn't gonna flop, however, because it was Star Wars. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha, nice. When Star Wars was released in 1977 under 20th Century Fox, it was a huge box office success. Sci-fi and space were cool with the kids, and it brought in loads of cash. Alien was officially greenlit a few weeks after Star Wars was released. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) After a number of directors were considered, British director Ridley Scott was chosen. He was a young, inexperienced director at the time with only one film prior to Alien under his belt. But he was keen and appeared up and coming. Plus, the producers were huge fans of his debut film, The Duelists. Scott was also interested in making Alien a sort of haunted house horror film rather than pure sci-fi, especially since the xenomorph, which is the alien, designs by Giger were so frightening. Casting the film proved to be a little difficult because apart from being blue-collar workers in space, O'Bannon's characters were all pretty generic. Apparently, he had focused more on the setting and plot rather than the characters, who all went by their last names, making them gender ambiguous. Wanting the working-class characters to be as realistic as possible, Scott casted older actors, as well as both men and women. Actors Sigourney Weaver and Veronica Cartwright were the youngest actors on set at only 29 years old. So filming took place between July and October of 1978. Alien originally was to conclude with the destruction of the Nostromo ship while Ripley escapes in the shuttle Narcissus. 
However, Ridley Scott conceived of a fourth act to the film in which the alien appears on the shuttle and Ripley is forced to confront it. He pitched the idea to 20th Century Fox and successfully negotiated an increase in the budget to film the scene over several extra days. And I think that's one of the scariest scenes in the film, so I'm glad that he did it. Yes, for sure. Alien was released in the USA on May 25th, 1979, and was made with a budget of anywhere between 9 and $11 million, depending on your source. Alien successfully burst through the chest of the box office. <laughs> nice. <laughs> making just under $81 million domestically. God. It was also a huge critical success to boot, despite Roger Ebert's unfavorable review. Get out of here, Roger Ebert. To this day, Alien receives lasting praise from horror, sci-fi, feminists, and just film aficionados in general. David Edelstein wrote, quote, Alien remains the key text in the body horror subgenre that flowered, or depending on your viewpoint, festered in the 70s. And Giger's designs covered all possible avenues of anxiety, a dissolution of the boundaries between man and machine, machine and alien, and man and alien, with a psychosexual invasiveness that has never been equaled. With that said, Abby, could you please remind us all of the plot? I sure will. In an unknown part of the galaxy, a crew of seven members of the Wayland yutani Corp aboard the Nostromo on a routine space trip suddenly awaken from cryostasis. They are instructed to explore a distress signal coming from a nearby planet, and as their ship lands, it sustains some minor damage that the crew has to take some time to repair. They decide to explore the planet to see if they can trace the distress signal, and a few of the members discover some kind of life form contained within another ship that seemed to have crash-landed on the planet. They stumble across what looks like eggs, and it is soon determined that the life within is a possible threat when one of the eggs hatches and an alien attacks crew member Kane, bursting from the egg through his space helmet and attaching itself to his face with its long, spider-like legs. It wraps its long tail around his neck and tightens its grip, but keeps him alive. The team rushes to get Kane back to the ship, but Senior Officer Ripley has reservations about letting an unknown life form enter the ship. Ash, the ship's science officer, overrides her orders and allows the crew to bring Kane to the ship's medical wing. There, Ash tries to remove the face-hugging creature, but stops when he realizes the blood of it acts like an acid that burns through everything it touches. Eventually, the creature loosens its grip on Kane and is found dead. The ship's repairs are finished shortly after, and the crew decides to take off and go back into stasis, but there's a glitch. Kane, seemingly fine after his ordeal with the facehugger, is anything but, and as the crew eats dinner together, another creature bursts out of his chest. The crew is shocked, but realizes they have a bigger problem on their hands when the critter runs off into the ship and is nowhere to be found. The crew does everything they can to locate and kill it, but after unsuccessful attempts, decide that it must be in the ventilation system of the ship, and crew member Dallas tracks it down, but it kills him too. The creature is now fully grown, a massive monster that wants only to destroy the tiny crew. As the crew realizes that they're being picked off, crew member Lambert suggests they abandon the ship and escape in the ship's 
pod, but Ripley, knowing that the pod won't fit the rest of the crew, orders them to stay and flush the alien out of the ship. She gains access to the ship's motherboard, aptly named Mother, and learns that Ash, the science officer, has been instructed by the company to bring the alien back, with or without the rest of the crew. Upon learning this, Ripley confronts Ash, who turns out to be a cyborg in league with Mother and the company. The crew destroys him, and in his last moments, he admits that he is infatuated with the creature. The crew cuts his power completely and realizes they are doomed. They decide to hop on the shuttle and abandon the ship, but as they gather supplies and prepare to leave, the crew is killed by the alien, leaving only Ripley and the ship's cat, Jones, to prepare the pod and make their getaway. As Ripley prepares to launch the pod and go back into stasis, there's one more showdown between her and the alien, who had hidden itself in the confines of the pod. Ripley, using her strength and wit, pushes the creature out of the escape pod and into space, shooting it with a grappling hook and blasting it into the ship's propellers. She is finally rid of the creature, and she makes one last entry into the ship's log and goes back into stasis with Jones, and they make their way through space to their home planet Earth. Thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. So let's talk about the Bechdel test. Yes, it passes! Yay! In fact, this was the film that inspired Alison Bechtel to write her comic that, in turn, inspired the Bechtel test. Yes! So let's talk about Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBTQ characters in this film? No. Oh, man. Um, I do want to recognize copywriter Barbara Gipps. Uh, she's actually the one who came up with the famous tagline to Alien, which was, in space, no one can hear you scream. Oh, the best. Yeah, and a lot of people do consider that to be the best movie tagline ever. I feel like a lot of people have tried to imitate it, but it's never been bettered. And I think it's very telling that this line came from a woman during the second wave of feminism in the late 70s. And for those of you who don't know, so the second wave feminism was a period of feminist activity. And many think that it began in the United States in the early 1960s. And it lasted for roughly two decades. And this idea of screaming to be heard, but nobody cares to hear you, uh, like you might as well be off on a distant planet, really resonates, I think, with this time period and the film. Wow, yeah, that's perfect. All right, so let's talk a little bit about like classism and female blue-collar workers. So Ripley and her counterparts are essentially space truckers. <laughs> nice. And I can't even tell you how many articles I read where that was the term, space trucker. Like Everyone described them as that. And they're not wrong, I just thought it was funny. Um, they're being used by a high-end company to do the dangerous, dirty work, and they have to get infected and bring home a perfect, quote-unquote perfect, specimen for study. Uh, a lot of this gets explained in the sequels and prequels to Alien, but for now, the crew members aren't sure of the sinister plot and, you know, why they have been chosen to do it. And it's because 
they're just space truckers. Like, who cares, you know? And so that, I think, really resonates with people who are blue-collar workers. And, and like, their job isn't at all glamorous or anything. Um, but Ripley especially takes a lot of pride in her job, and she follows protocol, and she gets the job done, like, whenever she can. And she is willing to have people killed for the better of the rest of the crew. Like, when she refuses to have Kane come back on the ship, she wants to make sure that their mission and that their job and everyone else is safe. And yeah, she's willing to risk like one person for the greater good. I mean, she's a hard worker. And honestly, even though she is, of course, human and she does make mistakes and she does get scared in this film, as she should, she is the most intelligent person on the ship. And I think part of that comes from the pride she finds in her career. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I find sort of sad about her character, but also very empowering, is that she is a single mom who's, I mean, she's probably trying to do what's best for her family, so there's this separation between her and her co-workers. Mm -hmm. Like, she feels for them, but only to an extent, and... It's kind of amazing to see this in a female character because she's not what you'd expect from a female leader as far as like Hollywood goes. Like oftentimes films portray women as like stuck up bitches or ice queens or the complete opposite being super warm and motherly. And she is neither because she's in the middle. And like you can't tell me that you wouldn't exercise the same judgment that she does in her position. Any human that's trying to live through a space mission would probably, you know, you would have to think rationally. And I don't think that she's really cold-hearted for not wanting to let Kane back on the ship, but she knows that whatever he's got poses a threat to her and everyone else's existence. And men in films and in blue-collar life normally have to make those hard decisions. So seeing a female have that kind of decision-making ability is so brutal, but it's amazing. Like, it's such a like a pioneering moment for women in film. You know, and I think that we can sh- see that she's not like a, a cold-hearted person um, when she saves the cat. True! <laughs> I mean, that Jonesy. is like... Exactly. And I think that she's not like unkind, like she's not evil, you know, she's not doing it because she hates Kane and, you know, whatever. She's doing it because that's protocol because she didn't have to save the cat. Even when because when the cat like runs off the first time, she asks, um, I forgot his character's name, but it's um, Stanton, the actor, um, to go off and get the cat because she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to deal with it. So she tells him, just go get the cat, please. Yes. She does have this idea of, like, her sense of her job and, like, what it means to her. But at the same time, like, she's a good person. (laughs) And you know what? This makes her human because she has a kind heart. She has a human heart. Um, And at the same time, she is a leader. And she does make hard decisions that make her seem like she's... A terrible person but I think like from a film aspect it's great that we see that she saves the cat because that just makes her so much more well-rounded as a character well and something else that I just thought of too like it's almost like her, this relationship between her and Jones the cat is like a metaphor for her motherhood so like she's off working 
And it's not that, like, she doesn't really have time or that she doesn't want to deal with her daughter, but it's, like, it's something that she needs to take care of, something that she needs to get done. Right, absolutely. the opposite side of that is that she is a warm and caring person and she doesn't let Jones die. So that No, because she defends the defenseless. Right, right. So maybe that's, like, her maternal side, how that's shown in the film. So, because you don't see her daughter in the film. You just know that she has one, so. You know, my husband says um, that there are three types of people in the world, and not none of them are bad, really. I mean, I guess one of them would be, but um, the three types of people in the world, there are sheep, there are wolves, and then there are sheep dogs. And sheep are just people defenseless animals, you know, whatever, like people who just go about their lives and not having to worry about so much. Um, then the wolves are the people that prey on the sheep, right? So those would be like school shooters, businessmen who like Whalen industries, if we want to look at the fictional side of it, like they would be wolves, right? And then alien would be the wolf. And then people like Ellen Ripley are sheepdogs, and they are the ones who are constantly trying to watch out for the defenseless and at the same time trying to lead and get the sheep to where they need to go so that they can survive. Yeah. And I think that this is a really good look at the three different types of people, if you want to sort of dumb it down, the three different types of people in in the world or on this ship, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think Ellen's a really good example of the sheepdog mentality. Yes, I love that. Yeah, let's keep talking about this. So Ripley getting her hands dirty and fighting the patriarchy at the same time. So according to Sandra Jackson and Julie Moody Freeman, quote, in the alien films, neither the character of Lieutenant Ripley nor those of the other female crew members are secretaries. They do not serve coffee, do not receive special treatment or deference as girls, and they do not pander to the egos of the men. They are non-stereotypical, independent, and fearless. When we first meet Ripley, she is a woman working in space uh, who has a daughter at home, like you said, Abby, and there is no mention of a husband. Yes, and in an interview with the American Film Institute, Sigourney Weaver said that she was fascinated by Ripley's character because it was actually written for a man. So she doesn't have these scenes of being vulnerable. She is a thinking, moving, deciding creature who didn't wait for anyone to save her. And she goes on to say that the sexism in the film is a reflection of how it actually is in the workplace. And she admired that the comments and treatment from the men in the film get no reaction from Ripley. Like, she keeps her cool, and that was a good thing for women to see. And as someone who has dealt with this firsthand, I can say that it's incredible to have an on-screen female like Ripley as a representation or role model for women who literally fight the patriarchy every day when they're just simply trying to do their job. Yeah, exactly. I actually did think of you a lot when I was watching this, because I was like, oh, Abby's worked this kind of job before. Oh, yeah. (laughs) According to Zamina Gallardo and Jason Smith in their article, Alien Women, The Making of Lieutenant Ellen Ripley, quote, perhaps in a way, 
in that her confrontation with the final destruction of the alien, the object of desire of the military industrial industrial complex becomes the major theme of the series and thereby gives voice to the contemporary feminist goal of saving humanity from the destructive impulses of the patriarchy. Her transgression and resistance in destroying not only the alien, but also the whaling company shows her desire to dismantle corporate capitalism. Mm-hmm. Which will do anything to get its hands on the alien as a weapon. Yeah, so Patricia Melzer adds to this in her article, Alien Constructions, Science Fiction and Feminist Thought. This rapacious form of capitalism is presented as analogous to the alien. Predatory, omnivorous, insatiable, and deadly. Which begs the question, what else could this alien represent Hmm. so monsters the womb and mother (laughs) (laughs) every time i see the word mother i want to read it like the guy does in the trailer for the movie mother mother um i always (laughs) think of danzig the song mother (laughs) mother (laughs) oh no that's where my mind goes automatically (laughs) So the birth of the alien from Cain's stomach plays on what Freud described as a common misunderstanding that many children have about birth. And that is that the mother is somehow impregnated through the mouth. Yikes! (laughs) And this is determined by Barbara Creed, who, who wrote Horror and the Monstrous Feminine, An Imaginary Abjection. So according to Davina Quinn-Levan, Scott's magnificently evocative imagery sets up questions about sexuality and otherness in a way that has not since been so successfully achieved. The horror of birth, memorably evoked by the scene in which an infant alien springs forth from Cain's chest. The fleshy interiors of the alien ship contrasting with the clinical whiteness of Nostromo and the phallic facehuggers parasitic incubating their young, the dripping jaws of the alien, and the crew's vulnerable sleeping bodies in the womb-like hub of the ship. Ooh, that's so creepy. I, oh, yeah. yeah. Nasty. But <laughs> there, okay, so there's actually a really cool article from this website called Schmoop. Okay. <laughs> but it talks about what each female represents in the film. (gasps) Yeah, so both the alien and the ship's interface, mother, represent motherhood, sure, but one represents technology and the other represents nature. Oh, snap. Yeah, and both can be dangerous, and Ripley is caught, like, right in the middle. And they're both trying to use Ripley as a means to an end. But Ripley fights them both. Mm. That's interesting because she is literally in the middle with who she is as well. Yes. Yes, exactly. But this also comes back to that like mother maiden crone trifecta that we see so often in literature. And Ripley emerges as 
like the fierce maiden in the wake of two other destructive female forces. So in another light, though, we know that Ash's secret mission is to bring the alien back. And Ash is a pawn of a large corporation on the hunt for a new discovery or like a new life form. And Mother and Ash work with each other to make this happen. So together, they could sort of represent a man and a woman in league with a metaphorical patriarchy. And Ripley is a badass single mom, and she sees her survival as a crucial part of bringing this plan to a screeching halt. And again, she's caught between a delicate balance of complete female wildness, which is the alien who represents that uncharted female territory and power, and then the mercy of Mother and Ash, who are pawns of a a greedy corporation that wants to control that female power. Yes, I love it. It's seriously like tug of war, this whole movie. It's it's amazing. Um, You know, what's really funny is that in doing my research, it seemed that critics could not decide whether the alien creature represented male or female. Interesting. Yes. And I always felt like it represented female. Like, just just without any research, just from watching the film, I always felt like it was a female. Um, but it does make sense that it could potentially mean male. Um, film theorist James H. Kavanaugh thinks it's a phallus symbol saying through grotesquely emphasized erectile images, the alien insistently registers uh, psychosexually as a threatening phallus, right? And then that does make sense. And then Barbara Creed, though, who wrote, you know, her The Monstrous Feminine, um, she likens the alien and, you know, like we talked about earlier, the spaceships as female. And then she suggests that the monstrous feminine is present in the horror film and its representation of the primal scene in a form of the archaic mother. So she's a monstrous mother who is the point of origin and end, thus representing life and death. Mm -hmm. Um, But however, Amy Taubin sees the alien as a mix of both sexes, describing its mouth as hermaphroditic, while the double jaws represented the inner and outer labia of the vagina dentata. Yes. The projectile movement of the inner jaw was a phallic threat. I was always taught in psychology, like whenever we would talk about um, gender or um, like natural phenomena of when like humans are created when a baby is born a hermaphrodite if i'm remembering correctly but um on their birth certificate their default sex is female so it's really interesting to me that she talks about this creature as being kind of a hermaphrodite but that both of us kind of relate it to being female Like, I wonder why that is. I'm not, I don't really know what the reasoning is for female being the default. Yeah, I don't know. Because when I watched it the last time, uh, after reading what um, Amy Amy Tobin said, uh, that scene where she's at the end and then the, like, the inner jaw, like, comes out and it's covered in, like, white grossness. Yeah. And it kind of looks like semen. I was like, oh, yeah, I can see how that's a penis. 
you know what, guys, if you're listening to this, let us know what you think, because we want to know. Yes, we sure do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so a little something more serious. Let's talk about the consequences of rape and how it's shown in this film. So Alien is a rape movie with male victims, explains David McGinty, author of The Alien Study of Beautiful Monsters. He continues and says, quote, and it also shows the consequences of that rape, the pregnancy and birth. It is a film that plays very deliberately with male fears of female reproduction. So the alien visualizes the two things so many men look upon with disgust and horror, getting penetrated themselves and watching a woman giving birth. That actually fits pretty well with what we were just talking about with being both male and female, like the the xenomorph. So Mary Ann uh, Johansson, who's the founder of the film blog Flick Philosopher, tells broadly, quote, do men really require a science fiction scenario to understand how horrific unwanted violation of the body is? Maybe if our culture treated male on male rape like the horror that it is, men wouldn't need to turn to science fiction movies to understand the problem. Yeah. Even if some men require such a prompt for their empathy, the Alien franchise still isn't one that offers much in the way of true access to women's relationship with rape. And I'm not even going to talk about men. I think women need to also understand uh, male-on-male rape is also horrific. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Central to the plot of Alien also, right, is this horror within us. And this, in my opinion, makes the film really, really scary because we like to think that we personally are safe. Like, I know that I'm a good person. I'm a safe person. That if people need help, I'll I'll be there type of thing, right? However, it's possible that our bodies, uh, with this whole idea of being impregnated by an alien, like our safe space, is not good. That it can be used as a source of breeding evil. Oh, and isn't that so crazy? I know that there are some women in my life who have talked about, like, I'm scared to have children because what if they grow up to be a serial killer? <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a that's a real fear. Yes, a lot of women do absolutely have that fear, you know. And I, it's sort of like that movie. Um, we have there's we have to have a talk with Kevin, or there's something oh, wrong with Kevin. Yes, whatever it's called. It's absolutely fair to say that Alien is a parable for um, abortion. And, like, I mean, Giger's work is very evident in portraying um, violated female bodies, uh, especially this whole theme of birth trauma. So I think that it's really interesting that Shusette, who helped O'Bannon write the script, like, he had this idea of this alien uh, impregnating this human. And I'm sure he got that idea because of Giger's work, because that is basically Giger's work, like, He was a Swiss artist, right? And Mm. he was super fluent in the tropes of German expressionist horror. And he was obsessed with the linkage of humans and machines and the overtly sexual, like, biomechanical relationship that it had. 
Ooh, yeah. And this to me reminds me of women giving birth in hospitals and like being attached to all of these machines and like trying to make sure that the mother like is breathing properly and that she her vitals are all still going, you know. And so like this whole idea of like being hooked up to machines while you're giving birth is so frightening to me. Like that's the part that scares me a lot. Yes. And Giger referenced and he was influenced by Francis Bacon's uh, 1944 painting three studies for figures at the base of the cru- of a crucifixion and like this withering animal-like creatures with like dripping sharp tooth mouths like balancing on some sort of interior design like this was what was so interesting is that bacon uh, was obsessed with the greek myth of the furies which were underworld goddesses of vengeance who pursue the living and Ooh. that to me just reminds me of the xenomorph yes absolutely Okay, so Abby, we're going to talk about Alien and the Shadow Self. Yes! My favorite! (laughs) I know. Okay, so speaking of being afraid of something within yourself, right? Going with the whole unknown and the term alien, right? It is very much like Jung's concept of the Shadow Self, which is referring to the darkness one wishes to conceal or reject within their personality. Yeah, so like we talked about a minute ago, the alien is a representation of wild female power. While the sex of the alien is never talked about, it's relatable to women because of the creation and birthing process. The xenomorph is bloodthirsty and does everything it can to procreate and keep its bloodline going. And in a way, humans are like this. Like, we wage wars in order to come out the bigger, better, faster opponent in order to keep our own bloodlines and cultures going. And the xenomorph is just a representation of that in creature form. Mm-hmm. So the, the shadow self is, in Jungian theory, instinctual and irrational. And it's untamed, just like the xenomorph. Yes, And it could also be that the xenomorph is a reflection of that darkness within all of the crew members, but particularly Ripley. The difference is that Ripley doesn't want to run from it. She's running towards its destruction full steam ahead. She's not backing down from a fight because she knows how tenacious the alien will be because she's just as determined as the creature is to survive. Mm -hmm. So in all actuality, she's the one who is successful in destroying it because she knows what it's thinking. It's animalistic and Ripley is incredibly instinctual. So she knows its next move. And another thing too that I just thought of was Ripley is probably the most in touch with herself and she knows who she is and she's very stable, I guess, in herself. So she knows they when she didn't want Kane to come back on the ship, that was kind of like a dark, very like tough, like bare bones part of her and she's she didn't want to budge. And I don't know really if the rest of the crew would have done the same. So I think they're kind of like out of touch with that part of their personality. But Ripley is like, mm, nope, this is how it is. So. I don't I don't think they would have because you have Victoria Cartwright's character and you have Dallas in the thing with Kane and they're like, let us in, damn it, you know, whatever. <laughs> and then I, the other two guys who work below, right, would have probably been like, oh, snap. And they would have just, I can imagine them probably doing it. 
and it's really kind of up to Ripley and Ash at that point. And uh, because we'll talk more about Ash in a minute, but Ash has an agenda. And I think that if his agenda was to keep it away, he's a robot, so he would have just kept it away. Um, but his agenda was to bring it on board. So it really was, in the end, up to Ripley. So, wow, okay. So Ripley, right? She's an action hero. If aliens spawned anything, it was female action heroes for the mainstream film. Like, Heck of yeah. course, yeah, like, of course, like, female action heroes had come before that. But, like, this was, like, the first time, I believe, that female action heroes were, like, front and center, like, in the mainstream film world. Mm-hmm. And according to Jackson and Moody Freeman, she's a tough gal rather than a tough guy who goes into the heart of darkness, kicks ass and survives. And according to Kavanaugh and Newton's interpretation of Ripley as a woman in a man's clothing, this representation coincides with Clover's definition of the final girl as a male surrogate, masculinized so that the male audience can identify with her because Ripley, like any other final girl is meant to stand in for the missing male hero yet this does not change the fact that at the end of the story all of the men are dead and a woman is the last one standing yes and alien was a mainstream pioneer for this kind of like gender bending in that way or maybe not gender bending, but just kind of like tossing gender norms aside, really, because everyone was on an equal playing field when it came to presentation. And in, instead of the typical Hollywood hyper-masculine or feminine hero character, we get someone who is relatable across the board. So basically, we get what we deserve. <laughs> and she's a female who's completely free of like ridiculous sexualization and we aren't dealing with toxic masculinity either but it also keeps with the themes of female sexuality power and nature so yeah everybody wins (laughs) absolutely you know and for me zan brooks also said this but like this whole idea of the final girl was very well established. Like it didn't have a name yet, Mm -hmm. but it was established by the time alien came out. And I think what alien did was that it shook it up a bit. Yeah. Like it made it, it made it different. Like she wasn't like a teenage girl, uh, who lived in a suburban town or whatever. Like she is an adult woman who has a job and she has a child and she's a single mom. She doesn't have a boyfriend boyfriend or husband and she's also fighting evil so i think that if anything like it just it took the idea of the final girl and it just brought it into a brave new world basically yeah all right so uh our final thought ash and ripley feminist anxiety in a still patriarchal universe now there is a amazing article called Reassessing Alien, Sexuality, and the Anxieties of Men by Jason Hagstrom. Uh, So please check it out in the show notes. I'm going to be quoting it a lot during this final thought because uh, it's just way better than what I ever could interpret. So it's not a problem. It's fine. I love it. This this freaking essay is so good and I, I personally got a lot out of it. So Uh, Jason Hagstrom says, if there's any doubt that the film is more concerned with male anxiety in the face of feminism, 
then of feminism itself, one only needs to look at two sequences late in the film, Ripley's confrontation with Ash and her return to hypersleep at the film's end. Okay, mm. so uh, we're going to talk about, though, Ripley's conversa- uh, confrontation with Ash because there is this very terrifying scene where Ash is like his in- confrontation with Ripley is a projection of the male's anxiety towards a future of sexual equality because within minutes of Ripley's assumption of command, Ash confronts her and he like attempts to sexually dominate her by stuffing a rolled up magazine and it's not just a magazine it's a porn magazine and he tries to stuff the magazine down her throat uh and into like in her mouth in a symbolic act of oral rape and it was sort of like him being like taking control of her and making her go back to pre-feminism and gender roles as a sexual object mm-hmm. uh, because he's a robot i'm i'm sure he who knows if he has a penis or not what jason uh, hagstrom thinks and what i really think too is that putting her back in her place almost yeah it's so hostile and so frightening and this happens right with the uh porn magazine but it also happens in a room that has nude photographs of women on the walls sort of like a reminder of the sexual objectification of women you know you would think that in this future society that wouldn't exist but it shows kind of that even in the future even when women are working again like with men that to me just shows that even though we think that feminism has gotten really far there's still like these little things that make it seem like women are just objects Right. And I think that scene really speaks volumes, honestly. But then, like, after she, like, attacks him, we see Ash, right, has this, like, milky semen-like substance, like, coming from his head, like, running down his face, which all of his masculinity right is in his head like it's all this that's what it kind of makes me feel like like because he's you know he's not real so all of this like domination like this whole idea of like this toxic masculinity is all in his head right and then and then Ripley has blood on her nose like to show that maybe like she's a menstruating woman you know yeah yeah so it is sort of in that scene like a battle of the sexes almost yeah well and they are it's kind of gross but like they're two life-giving fluids you know what i mean yes so god this movie is so crazy because there's always like the two sides right and you have ripley who is an actual like living breathing human being with blood inside of her and then you have ash who is a robot with like this weird milky stuff that's not it like obviously it's what helps him run and like gives him quote-unquote life but it's not actual life it's it's just so interesting right and well yeah what's so funny is that ridley scott said this movie isn't about anything (laughs) (laughs) okay okay ridley scott (laughs) Oh man! Try 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 not making it into anything, guys. And it's like, how can you not though? <laughs> no, it like ugh, it's so. Ugh. Well, okay. So I will say this though. 
So kind of going back to like what we were saying before about like the whole like blood and semen thing. Right. We have Ash, who is actually not human, not even able to produce like sperm or semen covered in this milky white stuff. Gross. And, you know, it's like reminiscent of semen, whatever. And you've got Ripley, who's got blood dripping from her nose. And, you know, menstrual blood is a sign that you're not pregnant, obviously. So there's no creation of life here. And the future seems almost sterile. Like, male sexuality becomes displaced, and it's a mere fantasy of these naked pinup girls, while female sexuality is almost non-existent. And if we didn't know that Ripley had a daughter back home on Earth, like, would human sexuality even be thought of? And, like, the only other woman in the film, Lambert, has this, like, short, boyish haircut, and the men interact with her in a very non-sexual way. So, like, there is no sexual tension there whatsoever, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And No, there isn't at all in this entire film. And I, well, I think this is a big part of the anxiety that men feel when viewing this film, right down to the totally unsexy white underwear that Ripley wears in the final (sighs) scenes. Listen, and... (laughs) And Ripley's underwear shrunk three sizes that day. Oh, my God. Girl. Girl. It's oh. too small. They are too small. Oh, my God. And I'm not saying that because, like, oh, you should wear, like, granny underwear. Look, I love granny underwear. Leave me alone. But <laughs> her underwear is factually too small. It is. But, yeah, like... Kind of going back a little bit, even Ripley's willingness to let Kane die because she won't let him on the ship is a revocation of that, like, merciful motherly guidance that women are pigeonholed into. And, like, this film is a complete role reversal of gender. It's women taking control of the creation and destruction of life. All of the power, like, rests in the hands of females in this film. And it's incredible. Oh, all right. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy, guys. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to www.goodmorningnancy.com slash merch. And all you got to do is click the shirt icon and you will be taken right to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. Over there, we review horror trailers, TV shows and new movies so become a patron won't you yeah you can also help support the show by following us on social media facebook at good morning nancy twitter at good morning nan and instagram at good morning nancy podcast we're also on tumblr at good morning nancy you can also tell a friend and spread the word about our show we love you all to death have a good morning bye